a lot of my mentors are artists. I don't mean in the paintbrush and canvas kind of perspective, but people who have artistry in the way they're able to relate. Um, I, I think about some of the palliative care doctors I've worked with who are incredibly sensitive and incredibly passionate and compassionate at a time of a person's journey in their health where there's nothing else that really matters more. The ability to sit down and hold someone's hand and say, you know, it's going to be fine and we're going to help everyone through this and you is truly art. It's the art of connecting. And I think that that is something that we are kind of losing these days in healthcare because things have become so partitioned. And then we wonder why people fall between the cracks or people feel abandoned or they don't follow our instructions. So the art is really in the connection part and in the caring part in healthcare. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Awesome. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Next Iteration podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Larson. He's an experienced physician executive with a demonstrated history of working in the medical and health information technology space. He did his MD from UCalgary. Uh, he was the former chief medical officer of Ontario MD. He's currently a lecturer at UFT and a senior advisor for Accenture's Canadian health practice. Um, so really excited to get his thoughts on sort of medicine, the in- investing in the angel side of medicine, um, and his long career history and what he's learned so far. So yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Larson, for hopping on, and we're excited for a great conversation. Thanks, Vlad. Pleasure to be here. And when you say long career, you basically mean I'm old, right? So that I'll take it. <laughs> you know, beats dying young is what I keep telling people. So it's perfect. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wisdom, right? That that the whole shebang. Um, so jumping into it, uh, kind of just bounce the back off of that, off of that uh, long illustrious career piece. I'm curious to hear what what's something that you've learned or taken from either med school or that long illustrious career that you think every lay person should know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, in medicine, there are so many lessons, right? Because we're actually facing the reality of humanity every single day in every, every single aspect of our care. And that doesn't matter if you're a neurosurgeon, a family doctor, psychiatrist, you're facing, you know, the very real, world and and what people are experiencing moment to moment. So the first thing that I I took from that is humility. So one of the most important things, I think, for all of us, whether we're physicians or scientists or, or journalists or teachers, is to be able to sit back and say, I don't have that same lived experience. I need to really listen. I need to lean in and listen hard. I should listen more than I talk. And that's something that's a very hard thing for us to do, especially in science professions where we want the answer, we think we have the answer, and it's our job to kind of educate people or inform people. Um, it's very hard to sit back and not. So um, one of the, it's an interesting kind of phrase that um, one of our associations to come up with, which I love, which is essentially, don't just do something, stand there. So one of the best things I can do in all of my world, whether that's my, Accenture, my uh, consulting work with Accenture, or in with a patient is to simply sit back and say, tell me your story and then actively listen. One of the things I see in tech a lot of the time, especially with some of my learners is that they are on the computer constantly recording verbatim transcripts of what the patient tells me. I'm like, that's not what we need. Any, you know, any word processing program can do that for us now. 
what we really need in terms of clinicians, doctors, nurses, everyone who is in a helping profession is the ability to sort of synthesize, analyze, empathize, and then come back with some solutions that work for individuals and work for our patients. And, and that's a really hard thing to do when you're staring into a computer screen instead of staring into the patient's eyes. So humility is number one. Uh, the ability to sit back and listen is, is a big part of that. And then the third part of that is to, to have some levity. You know, you, it, it's never bad to have a sense of humor. It's never bad to be able to show that you yourself are human. And even if you're in a position of authority or you're in a job where you're able to have expertise, Mm. Um, I'm just a guy, like I'm just a dude and I'm pretty much the same as all of you. Um, maybe I have a few more years of experience under my belt, which has taught me some real lessons, but I'm just another guy. So what I really want to do is be able to relate to people. Um, and, and medicine's taught me to do that. I think pretty well. And I'm translating that into my career in health technology now and in teaching, because in my mind, these are all very parallel paths. Um, the skills that you use in one are applicable to, to all the rest. But basically, it starts with that for me. Uh, it's this is by no means like a jab at surgeons, but you know, you, you, <laughs> you see, uh, oh, not at me. Okay, surgeons. Oh, not go at you. Ahead. Not at you. No, fine. It's surgeons, no problem. Yeah, because you mentioned the humility piece, right? And you know, I, again, like not a jab, but I see or hear stories a lot of times about surgeons having this god complex, and you know that humility isn't really there to be seen, and in like not necessarily in applying this to, uh, to physicians, but in, for people in general, right. I feel like the highest form of this comes where you have confidence without arrogance and humility without insecurity, right, but right. you do need that balance to make sure that you don't go overboard in any one of those. But yeah, man, that God complex is something that it's, it's, I guess it's understandable when you have people's lives literally in your hands and you're saving them like day in and day out. It's understandable where that comes from, but do you think surgeons could also do with some of that humility or? Yeah. I mean, I think that's very personality based really though. I know some fantastic surgeons. One of our friends is actually had a doctor of philosophy before he went into med school and is a, like one of the most sort of humanistic surgeons I've ever met in my life. And, And I think there are many of those out there. What happens though in healthcare is there is this pedestal, right? And, and the higher your expertise level, the more you're put up on a pedestal and the more you're rewarded for being expert. So um, it does come down to the ability to still be expert and still be able to communicate to people exactly what your expertise is. And that sometimes in a surgeon's realm is actually when their patient's asleep, but you gotta be able to talk to them before and after and explain what's going on in order for them to understand fully what they're getting themselves into, what's happening after the fact. And I think the problem that we have in some of our healthcare, I guess, learning environments is that the old school way of I'm the expert and you're the one who's coming to me for all my good advice is still predominating where now, you know, patient literacy is something that's exploding. You know, everyone has access to the, to the top notch medical textbooks that I learned from. Everyone has access to that. So we're actually seeing a much, I think, more democratization of the knowledge base any these days, we're not seeing big experts. Certainly there are technical experts, those guys who do 10,000 hours of something, you know, it's going to be operating or cutting or removing. They become experts in a skill, but that doesn't mean that they should not also be able to relate and explain that. One of the things I, I teach my students most, you know, very early on is you can be the smartest person in the world. You can have all that knowledge in your head, but if you can't give it to somebody else or translate it for your patient, it's wasted. It's completely wasted. 
you have to be able to relate. You have to be able to translate. You have to be able to meet people where they're at. And that may not be the place for all, say, very technical surgeons or, or scientists um, who may, frankly, you know, appreciate their patients asleep more than awake. But for the rest of us, for the vast majority of us in medicine, I think it, it comes down to that. Uh, we have to be able to relate. And I think our training programs are getting better at that now. Certainly having more women in the profession has done a lot for humanizing and democratizing healthcare. Uh, and now we're at a point where over half the graduates from med school are female. So that's been a big bonus, I think, in terms of us kind of figuring out how we, we interact. Uh, it's good mm -hmm. for all of us. Definitely. Um, so as a software engineer, uh, I can definitely say that. And when you're speaking to the technology piece in particular, it seems like a lot of the human qualities are where you're emphasizing, right? It's that humanistic approach to medicine. It's the humility. It's the being there, right? It's not just, oh, can I create an algorithm to auto-transcribe everything, right? It's, can I be there for the patient, show them I understand holistically, right? So my question for you is, as technology is like encroaching upon the world of medicine and things are becoming, you know, more and more digitized, do you see like a conflict arising in terms of like the reductive nature of technology and its tendency to... Um, individualize things and metricize things versus the holistic approach you want to bring to medicine. And is there like a tension there? Yeah, I mean, there's always a tension, uh, particularly when it comes to technology for its own sake. And, you know, I work a, with a lot of, you know, really bright people building a lot of bright, shiny things that are available to the mass public. And my question to them is always, what problem are you actually trying to solve here? Like, are you actually solving a problem that needs to be fixed? Or are you just offering a technology for its own sake, which, which I think, when you're a hardcore programmer, a hardcore engineer, it is about the technology. And, and the, the, the moment we start bringing the human factors or creative co-design process into play here, the more it becomes, I think, real for the average person. So, I mean, look at it, look at an Apple Watch as an example. So, you know, nothing really special about an Apple Watch. There's nothing great in that technology that is any better than a Fitbit or a Garmin or any of the other brands out there. But what Apple's done really well is bring that technology to the human interface in a way that we understand, you know? So it's not just about how many steps have you done. It's like, how motivated are you to fill in those rings on your fitness wheel or your activity wheel every day? It's not just about what's your heart rate, but can you be alerted when your heart rate is in some way abnormal? And, and the need to actually bring the technology into the usability, I think, space is where um, really good tech companies will thrive. And, and then ones that are going to be fly by night or the 70% of startups that fail, they often do it because they haven't really described the, the use case or the need in any way that matters. And if it matters, maybe they haven't been able to sell it to the right people or to talk about it in the right way that others understand. So there is a real finessing that needs to happen in technology. And I think that a lot of the startups now are getting smarter in that. They're doing design thinking courses now, they're going to human factors labs to figure out if this bright, shiny thing that I can hold in my hand is actually something that, that works or that does anything important, or is, you know, in the case of an app, for instance, is it just an app that I download, use once, and then let drift until I delete it, you know, which is the case for many, many of the things that we build. So that tension is always there. And, and this is what I try to teach in my class is, like, I need to ask you, and even to my residents, I need to ask you why, 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 why. I have to ask you why five times. And if you can tell me the answer to why we're doing this, after five iterations of why, you pretty much got a good thing. But if you're stuck at one or two, or like, mm, we need to rethink this process, right? You need to rethink what you're doing or building. Um, so it is a complicated thing. And I think what, what will work best for the engineers in the crowd or the programmers in the crowd is to 
cross the floor to people who are exactly unlike them. <laughs> so you need to find an artist. You need to find uh, a, a human factors kind of expert. You need to find a designer that's going to make your bright, shiny thing really uh, fly in the hands of an actual human. Because ultimately, it's humans, in most cases, that are buying these things or that you're pitching to or that you're having to get to use your product. And it's very hard to walk across the room to people who are exact opposite of you. But it's so important to do so because if you're extreme left brain, all science, you have nothing in the creative sphere you need those people to give that to you when you don't don't have it yourself. And then it all kind of centers around the frontal cortex in, in terms of describing meaning. But but it's important you cross the floor or cross the gap and and, and specifically seek out people to give you what you don't have. Um, and that's that's something that we um, we don't do easily, right? As humans, we want to be around people like us. That people would not challenge us that much. But to be truly challenged is where where the creativity really happens. Beautifully said. Damon is the artist here, and I'm I'm definitely the left brain analytical. So that's awesome. I well, I need much... to. I'm glad to be right in the middle of you in my Zoom speed. I'm gonna put my arm around both of you and bring you in for a big hug. That's <laughs> I feel love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, like touching on the, you need to find an artist, right? You your profile mentions that you find joy in the intersection of health policy, technology, and innovations that enhance care and the art of medicine. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll touch back on like the first part of that, but on the art of medicine piece, at what point does that, does practice start to deviate into being an art rather than an academic discipline? And do you have any like favorite quote unquote artists there in that space? Wow. I mean, a lot of my mentors are artists. I don't mean in the paintbrush and canvas kind of perspective, but people who have artistry in the way they're able to relate. Um, I, I think about some of the palliative care doctors I've worked with who are incredibly sensitive and incredibly passionate and compassionate at a time of a person's journey in their health where there's nothing else that really matters more, you know, maybe pain control, maybe a few medicines, but the ability to sit down and hold someone's hand and say, you know, it's going to be fine and we're gonna help everyone through this and you is truly art. It's the art of connecting. And I think that that is something that we are kind of losing these days in healthcare because things have become so partitioned. Um, there are so many layers and there are so many individual silos doing great work on their own, but they'll touch people and then hand them off to somebody else without any sort of transition or any sort of warm handoff. And then we wonder why people fall between the cracks or people feel abandoned or they don't follow our instructions. So the art is really in the connection part and in the caring part in healthcare. I think in, in other areas, like in the technology and that intersection between policy, technology and the art of medicine, the art of medicine for me really isn't about knowing every single drug to treat blood pressure. It's being able to convince a person that their blood pressure being high is actually a problem and that it may pose a risk to their health in the long-term or the short-term. It may be me having a really frank conversation with them about a very difficult illness that they have in front of them that they're scared shitless about, right? And I'm scared shitless for them because over the years of relationship with them, I've come to really know and like them, you know, and it's very hard for me to not feel what they're feeling. So the art is there in the ability to be uh, connected as another human being. And that's a really hard thing to do because it leaves you vulnerable. And I have these conversations in my clinic a lot with the residents where we kind of teach in residency about boundaries and boundaries are very important. Like 
you know, for heaven's sakes, don't have, you know, any kind of sexual contact with your patients. Don't lead them down a path where they're going to give you money. Don't accept big gifts. That kind of thing. It makes sense, those kind of boundaries. But to put a boundary up and say, if I'm going to see you in the grocery store, I want to look away and run the other direction, I think is wrong because we really need to connect with humans as humans. And I think it makes me a better doctor and more trustworthy with my patients when they see me putting ice cream in my shopping cart too, because I really like it, you know, or the the fact that um, I can talk about when I fell off my bike and, and fractured my ankle or when they have some pain, they go, yeah, I understand your pain because, you know, dude, I jumped off a cliff. I fractured my spine in two places. I didn't, I thought I knew pain before. I know what it is now. The ability to relate. I show them pictures of my kids. I talk about um, other things that have happened to me that relate to them so that they can be confident that what I'm telling them comes from a sense of not just knowledge of the, the science of it, but a sense of being able to understand and, and the understanding part goes well beyond the knowledge. That's the wisdom that rises out of our insights, that rises out of our information and knowledge and data, right? And so it, it even comes right back to that. On the policy side, you know, I really think we have to start, stop making policies that matter to a very select elite group of people who may be in government and start creating policies that actually make a difference for the vast majority of people. And there's huge equity conversations there. There are massive uh, conversations around like where we spend our cash, what we put our energy in, um, how, we, how we actually uh, go from the, the concept of an idea that becomes policy through governmental work. And, and, and it isn't perfect, but I think we can do a lot in that space to make it real for people and make it matter. So that's kind of a twisted answer to your to your uh, question, but it's a challenging question. It's a, it's a pretty deep one. Yeah, no, I, I just love the way that you framed it there, that medicine, or at least the way that these individuals practice it, really is an art. Because I think like just the general perception of medicine is this, it's this cut and dry profession, you know, you need to be um, this like a human encyclopedia to be able to log everything. And then it's pretty much just regurgitating all that information and being able to practice it, but reframing it in this way, I think can give people new passion for the things that they do. Right. Um, and it's in the way that you look at it. Cause even uh, I think there was a study conducted on this and I'm, my memory's a bit uh, fuzzy on this. Cause I was learning about this years ago, but they were looking at how I believe it was janitors um, at how happy and content they were with their jobs. Right. So for some of them, they viewed it as a vocation and not just a job. They were here because, you know, uh, even for some in hospitals, right? Like whenever they saw that um, uh, any of the patients that were residing in there had any problems or anything like that, they would always be the first person to go and find a nurse. They would go out of their way to help and like, you know, position everything in the room just to the patient's liking and things like this. And as a result of that, you know, they were so fulfilled in the things that they do. And I feel like for medicine, a lot of people go into it, maybe not a lot of people, but a good, a good sum of people go into it for the wrong reasons. Mm. It's either for the status or their, their family has told them to do it. And they've lacked that meaning in the work that they do. Yeah. So yeah. perhaps like pivoting. The, oh, sorry. Do you have something to say on that or? No, I think you're dead on there. And I think the problem with those people is they have a hard time getting through med school because there's not mm. enough in that to make it worthwhile. To, to go through all the really difficult times you have to deal with in medicine, either in school or in residency or even out in practice. And I work with a lot of, you know, I shouldn't say a lot. I work with some really unhappy doctors that they can't seem to find joy in their world. And they can't seem to find joy in their work. And I wonder, you know, what could be done to make that better for them. And um, 
it's a challenge, you know, and people say to me, would you tell your kids to go in med school? I'm like, yeah, fuck. Yeah, of course I would. It's like the best job ever. Like if any one of my kids wants to do that, I'm like right behind them, even though they've seen both of their parents working in long, long hours and, you know, avoiding um, some, not avoiding, but missing some of their major events in life. They could be, you know, soccer games or trips overseas or whatever, because we can't leave. Um, especially mm -hmm. during COVID, we were like really, really engaged. And so, um, it's, it's very hard for kids, but I'm like, this is a great profession. It's really important work. And, and I wake up every day happy that I have purpose. I mean, I, you can get purpose in any job and any profession if you have the right mindset. And the janitor explanation is that, or example is a great example of that because that janitor is going to find artistry in, you know, in having a very clean space in ensuring that there is order in ensuring that he's creating safety for people. So they're not going to slip on a, a wrapper on the stairs and break their leg or their neck. So there, there can be artistry in everything we do and you can find it everywhere you go. And if you're able to express that to others, they'll see it too. It's not just a job. It is a vocation and it doesn't even have anything to do with how much you're paid or what your, what your level of, of um, training is. It's how you approach that work. And another perfect example of that, Damien, is like, I remember a study around uh, one hospital in uh, Toronto where they had one unit in that hospital had very, very low rates of C. difficile contamination. So this is a, an infection that you can pass from person to person in the hospital and, and frail people get quite sick and can die from it. And we know that ha washing hands and using Purell is a great way to spread it. So, you know, all the nurses, all the doctors were learning how to wash our hands. But this one unit in particular, the surgical unit had very low rates of uh, C. difficile. And they went to, to examine why, and this is the, the interesting thing about the artistry, turns out that one of the, uh, the workers who was bringing food trays to that unit every day would make the specific um, uh, point of squirting Purell onto the patient's hand after she had brought the tray up and watching them wash their hands and then eat. And that's what cut it down. Not my hand washing, not the nurses, not her hand washing, but the patients. And she made a point of putting that Purell in their hands before they ate every single time. And that worked. So that's artistry, right? And that's thinking creatively in a very kind of what would have been a very specific scientific, um, I guess, um, algorithmic based way to do things. Wash your hands, you know, dry them well, don't touch anything else. Um, and it wasn't about them. It's about the patient. Yeah. And even like on the art side, like, um, again, like with the medicine, you can, it's easy to look at it cut and dry and art, you know, you can think of this as this like woo woo kind of thing. Like it's the hippies going out and do this or like liberal <laughs> arts majors that have like no career or whatever. I love the hippies though. They have a lot of fun. They have wants a to be a hippie. A hundred percent. I'm wearing my yeah. tree hugger shirt right now today. It's like the inside of a tree. It's like, I want to be a hippie myself and hug a few trees and click what sound. Anyway, they, carry they, on. I'm joking. Yeah. No, it's true though. Like they know something about life that the rest of us are missing 100% because they look way happier for it. Um, but there's uh, like the, on the, the art piece, right? There's, I love the way you describe it here really highlights how amorphous it is. Um, and there was this commencement address I think we mentioned before on the podcast, which is Neil Gaiman's. His thesis there is make good art. Mm -hmm. That's all he says, right? You have good times, make good art. You have bad times that really knock you down make good art yeah. and people i think can interpret that too literally like you know take that go go whip up a painting or something but it's in the things that you find passion in doing it's in the things that you find are your vocation 
And this can be in medicine. It can be literally as a painter. It can be in podcasting, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that's why it's all the more important that we take that initiative to try and figure out what yeah, what our art really is in life because that's what gives us meaning. That's true. And it changes, right? Because you, as you develop skills you're, and experience over time, your, your art form expands and it probably refines itself a bit. And I think that's an important thing that is not just a one and done kind of thing. And you, and you can't expect people at the start of their careers or the start of their education to have it all figured out. I have this, these conversations all the time with my students. They're like, how did you, how did you know you were going to get to where you are now? I'm like, I still have no fucking idea where I'm going. Like, honestly, I don't like a door opens. I walk through it. Sometimes it's a good one. And I keep going. Sometimes it's not, I have to turn around and go back. And you know, what I say to them over and over again is there like three things you need to do to figure out your craft? And first is to show up, say yes to a lot of things, show up a lot. Um, even when you don't think it's the right thing to do, just show up because you're always going to learn something if you have an open mind. The second one is speak up, like have conversations, say your voice, uh, make sure that your, your, your opinions are known, not trapped inside. And the third piece is anti up. You actually have to do things. So you have to follow up from what you've done and what you've thought and, and from your presence with things that are that are important and meaningful. And there's no reason all of us can't do that. And it's the only way I know how to find joy, right? And that's I think that's what we really lead with. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is like when you start finding joy in what you're doing, and you know, one of my big joys is doing things like this. It's like I learn a lot from people like you guys because of the fact that I can have these kind of conversations and what a gift that is to have one hour in your week that is allowing you to think, think deeply about things, right? But I've started to actually, in the last decade of my life, since my kids are a bit older and I have way less kind of actual like feeding work to do and <laughs> regular work, is to craft those relationships, to surround myself with people who, who have a sense of wonder about the world, right? And if we combine everything we do with a sense of wonder, then we're never going to come up with the wrong path. We might drift a little bit and come back to center, um, but we'll never come up with the wrong path. And this is my point is like, I didn't know when I was 25 that I'd be doing this right now. I thought I'd still be living in Calgary and maybe working in small town, Alberta. I never thought I'd be living in Toronto, teaching at U of T, working at women's college, becoming what's supposedly a digital health expert, which just means that no one else, not enough people are doing this work. But, but I think that, um, I had no idea where I was going to go. All I knew is that at that moment, mostly I felt like I was in the right place. And then as you start to jump and jump and jump, you eventually craft the path that is not the shortest path from A to B, you know, like, like you see it in a wrinkle in time, the shortest path from A to B is never a straight line. So, you know, that's kind of the wisdom I, I bring to the table every day. And, um, and, and I just am fascinated by the world. Right. And I think that's, there's artistry in that as well. Mm -hmm. definitely i love how you brought it back to the artistry piece damien and i have this like working theory about art and human connection where art is just whatever example of human connection you happen to embody yeah. and so whether it's music whether it's paintings right all you're trying to do is convey that fundamental sense of empathy whether like it's an emotion that you're conveying through music if it's an experience if it's a story whatever it is right and right. music patient care painting, podcasting, those are all examples of human connection, right? So I guess with that fundamental connection and empathy in mind, um, how has being a physician and being a leader in a, phys uh, in a physician sense differed from, you know, being a leader in your, mm -hmm. in other arenas of your life and how have those like kind of informed each other? So like what, yeah, what I lessons have you learned from that? 
I don't think they're different at all. I, I mean, I think you, and I, it's interesting because I've had the opportunity in the last couple of years to teach leadership officially at, at the university, which always made me cringe because I actually think that leadership is not, like there are some skills you can learn in leadership that you can, that you can transfer to other people. But I think leadership is actually a mindset. It's not so much that you, if you do X, Y, and Z and show these competencies, you're a leader. And, and even in medicine, I have trouble with the fact that our colleges say we're all leaders. And then we are, we're leaders in our community because people look up to us and they come to us for advice, but we don't need leaders all the time. Sometimes we need followers. So one of the things that I've learned is when it's good to step back and be a follower, uh, when it's most important as a leader, like the most important thing you can do is actually let other people show their leadership skills and their, their talent. I take the greatest pleasure out of watching people that I've been able to interact with, whether it's teaching or um, mentoring or just being around from the point of view of like, let's say a hackathon to watching them succeed. I mean, like I just, I just explode with joy and with happiness when one of my younger colleagues, like his thing goes big or she wins an award or she shows up in a small little town in Northwest Territories territories working where no one else will go like that gives me great pleasure because I think maybe I've influenced that a little bit so I think that the the intersection between medicine and the rest of the world is not really a crossover it's they're blended and consistently I say to my students and residents when like tell me about your work-life balance it seems like you have all these projects going on you've got like three really functional kids and still been married for 27 years to someone that you still really have a good time with I want to hear about this. Yeah. I want to hear about like this. all of that. And I, and I go, there's no such thing as work-life balance, you guys. There's only life, right? And life involves work. And you have to figure out when you're working more than you need that day or less than you need that day. Some days you're just going to have a bad day and you feel like crap. And that doesn't mean you're burnt out. It may just mean you're tired. But if you are burnt out, then you have to recognize that and say, look, I got to pull back from some things to give myself some space to heal. So, so the idea would be um, there is no... There is no distinction in my my mind between leading in life and leading in work. Um, and my mind, I lead by example, hopefully more than by telling people what to do. All my kids would argue otherwise because you know we're fairly in my house. You know, <laughs> doctors and house, you should just do that and just go and do it. And and there's maybe too much of that in my own family. But but I think if you look around me, um, all the friends that I've gathered around me are spectacular humans, and they are they're leaders in their own right. And they may well not be medical. You know, they may be business people or bankers or whatever. And Accenture now my job in the consulting space gives me way more access to people who are not medical, but it's interesting who you attract, right? So if you attract people in a sense of democracy or a sense of inclusion and fun and wonder, um, that's, that's the, you know, those group of people, when you put them on a project will lead like crazy. And not only will they lead, they'll bring along first followers and second followers, and then they will start a, a, you know, a revolution or an evolution. And I think that's really, in my, my view of leadership is not, I, I, I talk about tiered leadership quite often. Like, I don't want to be the guy generally that waves the flag is like, vote for me. And aren't I awesome? And take my picture. And I don't leave my house without taking an Instagram photo. Like, that's not me. I want to lead from that second tier. And that's basically kind of just under the radar not without a lot of not with a lot of fanfare, being able to see really good things that are are needed because I'm not spending all that time, you know, self-promoting or being um, the guy that everyone wants to shake hands with. I, I want to be there just sensing, doing, and then watching things uh, fly. 
And, uh, and I teach that a lot in, in, that, in my leadership courses around that second tier piece. And that's where influence is. So influence is probably even more powerful than sort of um, than affluence or ultimate decision-making authority. Because often if you're at the top of that heap, you're just being told what to do. Like if you're an elected official, you kind of have to follow the will of others. You can't really have your own creative ideas. But if you're second level, like in the Ministry of Health, for instance, the most powerful person there is the deputy minister, not the minister. The ministers come and go, right? They're, they move in and out. The deputy stays. The deputy sees what's going on and guides the province or the country in the work that needs to be done. That's exactly where I want to be. You don't have to get elected for that, but you do have to be, you do have to be um, someone people like. You do have to be likable. And there's a whole sort of set of theories around likable leadership that I think is really important now. Um, and you don't have to be everyone's best friend. There, I've made enemies. There's no question in my life. There are people that really don't like me. And I really think if they really don't like me, it's because they probably don't understand me or I fly in the face of what they see as the world order. And, um, and that's going to create friction. But that's okay. You know, they can, they can, we can both exist in the same space together. So there is a, just to round that out again, I think there is um, there is ultimate crossover in leadership between life and medicine and life and any career. Uh, it's really how you conduct yourself in that space more so than what you bring to the table specifically. Yeah. Uh, first of all, like super real quick tangent, but like on the last piece, um, the kids these days, we call them haters, like the enemies that yeah. you make along the way. And uh, we mentioned this before, but it's actually one of our KPIs for our podcast. Um, we've only had one hater so far. So uh, I feel like, you know, if you're making enemies along the way, you're probably going the right way. If, in, if video games have taught me anything. Yeah. Um, but I love the, the highlight, the, the emphasis you place on like the humility there, right. In order to be an effective leader, you need to know when to step back. It's not always about taking the helm and showing people the way. And, you know, like, it's interesting. Cause like we, we kind of do that on our own little small scale here on the podcast, right. In being a good interviewer, you really have to let your ego go and allow the other person sitting across from you shine. Um, because if you're able to help them bring the best version out of themselves, you know, you get to dive into their passions right. and the conversation just takes on a whole new color, right? And everyone's so much more enticed for it. And it's and really easy. It's really easy to do that, right? It and, is. And yeah. What you get out of that on a, I think on both sides of that equation is way more fruitful than just mm -hmm. like a pre-recorded or pre-vetted interview like you might see in say a newscast, right? Very, mm -hmm. very different. Yeah. And so I guess like, since we're already like diving deep and like into this area, we're talking about life and all this, uh, we were chatting before, like after class and I was uh, trying to invite you on the podcast and you were sharing me kind of with a couple life lessons. One of the things that you mentioned was that you have to value experience over all else. Um, I was just hoping you could speak to that a little bit more. Did I actually say that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I wrote it down. So unless I was lying to myself, where... I'm trying to remember what the context is was that was for that. Um, so I think it's it's not so much overall else, but you know, I think that I think that this is the conversation was around like when does the learning stop and the and the experience begin and how you how you learn from that. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Like sort of like there's a time where I, I do remember this now. You know, how many degrees do you need? How much specialization do you need? Uh, and there is a time where it, you need to be ready to just kind of jump in and start, like start working or start doing things. And um, and we have this conversation a lot in healthcare medicine right now, especially when some specialties have a hard time finding jobs. And so, you know, it's hard to be a cardiac surgeon right now because your career is completely 
linked to how much operating room time you get and whether or not you get a hospital appointment where, which has a cardiac program and they're not in every single hospital. So what we find then is people may be struggling to find work and then they go and get a, a degree or a fellowship and they get another fellowship and another fellowship. And then before you know it, they can only work in like the fifth floor corner office of the Gillian Center at Sick Kids Hospital. They can't work anywhere else because they've trained themselves out of relevance. Mm-hmm. And I think then, you know, the beauty of generalism is that you're able to sort of train just enough to be good at what you do and then launch. And as you launch, you, you gain experience, which is far richer than any academic training you can get. And that experiential set comes back to you in ways that just amplify over time, right? And you will always, I think in medicine all the time, I, I still remember individual patients from the first days of my clerkship and my residency and my time in the emergency department in Banff Hospital when I was 23. Like I remember individual patients because things were so pivotal or profound for me in that environment that I learned way more than just about putting the suture in or fixing the open head wound or whatever it was I was doing. And so then that builds on on itself and you become, um, I think a more complete person and a more complete professional no matter your job. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was probably trying to talk about in that conversation. Although um, if my context was wrong, please correct me. Honestly, I'm struggling to remember now too. I think like yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, that's so. the problem with quotes, right? Quotes out of context, <laughs> quotes inside of a major conversation are really meaningful. And then mm-hmm. quotes when you write them down, like, "Whoa, what was that about?" What kind of crazy <laughs> shit did that guy just say? <laughs> yeah, I think you did a great job of carrying that. Oh yeah, we're yeah. a big fan of quotes on the show, so we Got definitely it. we definitely experience that quite often. Um, I'm going to pivot the conversation a little bit, being the tech pro that I am, because there's a couple yeah, topics please. I really really wanted to hear your thoughts on. Uh, and one of them is sort of around like tech. And then like the marriage of tech and medicine. So a question is like, what do you think is the primary blocker preventing medicine from fully embracing technology? Do you think it's policy related? Do you think it's old attitudes that are sort of slow to change? Or is it that tech hasn't fully adapted itself? Or none of those three things. Hmm. There's a question. So um, like, interestingly, tomorrow morning at 730, I'm giving rounds at Dalhousie uh, in a program called Medicine Matters around virtual care and digital health for physicians. And that same, I actually asked that same question. What's the barrier here for you guys adapting and adopting technology, which is really meaningful to you? But what I, I think comes down to a couple of things. The first one is remember that physicians are trained as skeptics. We are trained to question everything. And that's how we work through our algorithms and diseases. Like, is this symptom actually important? Is it important by itself or with other symptoms? Is there evidence around the symptoms actually causing disease? Is that disease gonna cause harm? Is that harm gonna need to be treated? And those kinds of questions as with scientific rigor, plus the, the constant questioning around the relevance of a complex of issues, um, is what causes us to not just jump right in with technology. Because we, we start from a place of, I'm not going to say distrust because we trust what we're hearing, but we start from a place of skepticism. And skepticism means, and for me, I think this is very helpful, just because it looks cool doesn't mean it is cool. Just because it looks like it's going to solve a problem doesn't mean it will in the long term. And we have to really analyze the purpose for some of this technology and whether or not it's going to add to our experience or detract from our experience. So I could pick virtual care as a, as a topic um, on that sort of chain, because I think 
you know, everyone goes, why doesn't everyone do video visits with the patients? Why have we never done that before? Why do we go from 4% uh, virtual care to 91% in two weeks when COVID happened? I'm like, well, because something changed, right? The technology was always there. We had Zoom, we had Teams, we had a, at least 40 virtual care platforms in the province, plus one big provincial one funded under Ontario Telemedicine Network, but we weren't using it robustly. So I'm thinking, number one, there was no pressing need to change from our end and the patient's end they kind of have adapted to the, the, the way we've always done things as well. So they were kind of okay with it. They weren't completely happy with it, but they were already functioned. But when you br bring in a pandemic where you can't meet people face-to-face -face because of risk at a time where we have um, all kinds of constraints in, in, you know, from the point of view of infection control, from the point of view of travel, for you name it, and we had to pivot. So all it took was one burning platform, which was a pandemic, and a couple of fee codes that I could now build to do it. Because in the past, there weren't any fee. I couldn't get paid for doing it. So sometimes we, we think the technology makes so much sense to us, but it doesn't fit into our workflows. And many times we're asked to leave our place of work, which in my world, in my primary care practice, let's say family doctor, is going to be me with my patient and my clinic team in front of my EMR. If I have to leave my EMR to go somewhere else to do something, even though it's technologically really great, I'm simply not. Because those 10 steps to go there, even if they're digital steps, consume time after time after time. And it, it means sometimes copying and pasting or repeating the same work I'd already done. It just doesn't make sense to me. I, I'm incented by both the patient and the system and the way I'm paid to get on to the next problem. So we don't consider the workflows well enough. And I'm about to head to Calgary to do some work with a company out there in their clinic space around why their clinic is, um, it, despite having a really awesome environment and really great footprint, why they're having a hard time, why they're being challenged and their experiential scores are not fantastic. And, and I think it's, it's because largely because when they created this great space, they didn't really think through the workflows. Like how are people going to move through this environment? How are we going to actually create a transition from one provider to the other? And, and I think that this is something that we see all the time in technology like really cool things that never ever come together. They're not really interoperable and there's no real incentive for them to be because they're often competitors with each other. So, you know, it's a really tough space in the, in the adoption uh, sphere. And everyone goes, oh, we're so busy and it takes us away from our care. I'm thinking that's a bit of an excuse because everyone's always busy. If something is really valuable, we'll incorporate it. If it's not, we won't. Or if it does, it takes a long time. If it is, it takes a long time. We know that to really change behavior in medicine, this is borne out through multiple studies on when guidelines change, physicians actually then widespread adopt those guidelines. It's between 14 and 17 years from when the guideline is published to when people say, that's what I do all the time. So it's a long change process. And we don't, we don't have the patience to work through that in many cases, nor do we provide the change management approaches that we know cause humans to change and behave differently faster. Uh, we don't value that as a service. So, you know, it's a very complicated space. I think clinicians love, like virtually every, like doctors are the, um, basically iPhone and doctors go hand in hand for whatever reason. Doctors are using iPhones almost exclusively, not, not other handheld phones or other Android devices. And why is that? I'm like, because the iPhone kind of fits our actual workflow. Like it does what we needed to do. Even the apps that are on it seem to work well clinically for us. And uh, we, we love that technology. We use it all the time. But if you throw me a, a bright, shiny thing in my office, like, hey, just use this digital tool to say mine your data or to find patients who need a study done on them or whatever, I'm like, eh, that's new work. And I actually don't see the benefit of that for me or my patients. So I'm not going to do it. 
Um, and it's no one's asked us, no one asked us beforehand, is this the right thing for you um, or for your practice? And then they wonder why we didn't take it up. I mean, history is full of that in the digital space. Um, and I worked, you know, in the government world for a long time with Ontario MD, trying to implement things that we knew would change practice dramatically. And yet some of the stuff we offered up was kind of lackluster. I'm like, eh, it's all right, but it's not good enough for me to want to use it all the time. So why would I bother, right? It's complicated. It is complicated. To Does that answer your question, Fawad, or is that just way too no, much? No, that was, I mean, I was looking for way too much. So you hit it right on the head. Okay. Yeah, I don't awesome. think there's an easy answer to any of these questions, right? It's all about the discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that does kind of like lead me on to my next discussion point. Um, and I'm assuming you do a lot of this with with the angel investing you're doing with Halo Health. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because it seems like there's a lot of like overlap of these, like, you know, how do we integrate this techno technological care with, you know, the existing word of medicine, but also how do we incentivize and grow these companies uh, in the right mm -hmm. way, especially when, you know, medicine in Canada is somewhat public, somewhat private, right? There's like these interesting overlaps there. So uh, I want to hear a little bit more about like why you're personally involved with Halo Health and what you think they're doing different in terms of like helping healthcare startups succeed um, and why you think that angel investing approach works when, when solving issues. In sure, absolutely. So to be very clear, I've not yet put any money into a company through Halo Health, but I have been part of their physician circle, which is now I think over 200 doctors. Uh, and we can offer up support to Halo Health through either putting money into companies or through helping vet products or to show up at meetings where we ask really important questions of these startups. Okay. Interesting concept. So, so Halo was created by a couple of really smart doctors in Toronto that said, we think we have, we want to invest in technology that helps our practices and helps our patients, but we don't want to go through the Silicon Valley kind of route. And when we collectively pool our money together, we actually have a fair bit of potential purchasing power or influence uh, financially, and we can create investment circles that will actually be um, applied to companies that we seek, uh, that we seek to come to us and then we think have value. What's been really interesting about that group is that they actually have a process now for vetting these companies. It's kind of standardized now. Like you, there's an intake process where companies looked at and say, and they come to a conclusion very quickly. We don't think you're ready or you're, you're already too far advanced and you don't need us yet. Or we think we want to put some energy into helping you be better. Um, and, and that I haven't seen very often in the VC space. A lot of it is like, ah, you know, we have lots of cash come to us. If we think you're worthy, you might get some. If we don't, you don't. And Halo is a bit different that way because first of all, it's all doctors and only doctors in that investment circle. So we really want to focus on clinically appropriate or applicable technology. It is a collaborative. So it's a collaborative environment. And Dr. Ben Fine can speak to you better about this than I can for sure, but um, because he helped create it. But the collaboration, I think, is really helpful because you can bring in experts from the field. Let's say it's a neurosurgical tool combined with someone like me in family medicine who says, but when you're out of the hospital, how do I deal with this after the surgery is done? Like you can bring all that skill set and, and knowledge base in. And we frequently say no to products. And mostly we say no when we, when we don't think they've actually met the clinical need that we expected that it would. And then there's some advice on how to go back and, and pivot and do that. And maybe you come back two or three times and maybe then you're successful. I have invested in, in a couple of small startup companies um, from people who I know, like generally people that I've worked with uh, who have got a really great idea. And I just think they're awesome people. So it's kind of like when you invest in somebody um, that's your friend, you have to be fully prepared to lose that money, right? You go in saying, I might lose this $10,000, but I'm willing to take a chance on that without 
uh, screwing up our relationship because I just think what you're onto is something cool. I mean, even if you don't win on this one, you'll win on the next one and it's all going to be good. So it's kind of like when you give a loan to a family member, don't ever expect to get that money back. Like that's what I think about with the VC stuff for me and individuals. But as a collective, you do expect to get something back and it is, it is a much more powerful beast. And there are agencies that are doing this through government. There, you know, there's um, all kinds of incubators out there uh, that are private or corporate or, or through agencies that have either public or a combination of public and private funds. And they're doing really good work. But the nice thing about Halo is it's clinicians defining what we think should move ahead because we think we know the healthcare system best because mm -hmm. uh, we're working in it every day. So it's a very interesting space. But again, I, I haven't put money into it yet. I've only offered time into it. And I think that there will come a time that I do put money into something that I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, no. I just haven't found the right thing. I, I, I love how you explained how like Halo's approach is different from the typical like Silicon Valley VC mindset. Because I actually, I work in VC and I've definitely seen that mindset before in Silicon Valley. And I, I think it goes back to the whole concept of medicine being about connection, right? Connecting with the people founding mm -hmm. these companies and really like, you know, emphasizing the holistic connection and how are we solving this problem? Like, what can we do to help you solve this problem better? Maybe it's not the right time to invest for us, but you're still working on something that we care about, right? So yeah, I love how that, those attitudes are translated in, into that investing space. And the concept of profit is very uh, variable, right? So, I mean, if you're, uh, one, I was involved in a startup that was around a men's mental health um, body of work, mm -hmm. and and you know, it was very grassroots and very community based, and and they end up in a Silicon Valley incubator, and and I've had to withdraw from some of that. Partly, I'm now in conflict with my job because Accenture also has an app, kind of like it. That means I, I can't actually advise that and work for this company, but but also I withdrew because I think going through the process of being incubated by big business people who, who see the ability to make millions of dollars. Like you're going to be the next Bezos, right. Or, or whoever else um, changes things. And it starts becoming about how do we get advertising and how do we build revenue from it? I'm like, sometimes the value in a product is not on, on the monetary side. It's on the, have you actually changed the human condition or have you changed something important in society or in a healthcare trajectory. And you might only just break even if you're lucky. And in many cases, you're gonna lose money and maybe you're gonna help hopefully get some grants or research or something to build that up. But, but the focus on financial profit all the time, I think in some of these incubators is really problematic for me in healthcare because then we lose track of the reason we started the journey. Um, and there may be a way to make money plus do the right thing, but I haven't seen it really robustly done yet, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can see that soon. So. Maybe. Uh, we do know that the, the Larson household has a special dinner, or I, I suppose it's like a regular dinner, but it's, it's special <laughs> to us, regular folk out here. Um, I wanted to ask one more question kind of on this topic space to round that out. And then we have a traditional final question that we ask all of our guests, which hopefully you can mentally start to prepare for, even though you can't because nobody sees it coming. Uh, so <laughs> the, the question I wanted to ask quick, though, is when you look at the largest healthcare companies in the world by market cap, none of them seem to be really coming out of Canada. So just curious, like in your head, like what are the implications of this? And is this something that needs to be changed or are we perfectly fine the way things are? Yeah, I mean, the question is, is market capitalization the right, right. way to measure right. um, success? And 
uh, I think the biggest reason is in a publicly funded health system, there isn't, we don't measure those things. We don't, I don't actually, I can't tell you what an x-ray costs, right? I probably should know. And probably someone does know somewhere, but I can't tell you what it costs for me to order a chest x-ray. So there's no ability for us to really deep dive down into the data around a cost benefit analysis or return on investment like they can in the States or they can in a lot of for-profit countries around the world um, where healthcare is, is entirely for-profit. So we don't have that same enterprise view of, of monetary success in terms of efficiency or effectiveness or outcomes, which I think is kind of freeing in a way. I mean, we could bring some of that in from the point of view of accountability and maybe all of us should know what a chest X-ray costs. Maybe I would order fewer of them or for sure I would order you know, less CT scans thinking about radiation exposure, but maybe I'd order fewer of them when an X-ray of the knee would do just as well for one-tenth the price if I knew what that price was. I don't even know the price of the drugs I prescribe, you know? So, and even the drugs are, even though they're listed from a wholesale perspective in some cases, there's markup, there's all kinds of things that happen in pharmacies that change the price. And I don't know, yet I, I, there are some studies that show that 40% of my patients don't buy the drugs I give them because they can't afford them. So, so I think that the monetization part and that CapEx piece is very difficult to quantify in Canada. But the other thing is, uh, Canadians are very suspicious of innovation, I think, generally. We, we want it to be proven somewhere else before we adopt it. Um, and that's, that's part of our culture. And I, there, there are good things about that. Like maybe we're not going to be you know, going bankrupt in an Enron scandal. Maybe we're not going to be suffering some of the vagaries of economics because we are more cautious. Maybe we're more inclusive through that caution, um, but it doesn't allow us to exponentially explode in ways that they can in the States because people there are willing to take greater risks, but in, in exchange for that, they want a greater chunk of the profits. Here, a con typical Canadianism, like even with our artists and our singers and actors, like we don't really consider them successful or, or actually even... Um, great at their craft until they've succeeded somewhere else, right? And then they're, then they're ours again, right? We, we repatriate them in an instant, but they're not immediately seen as, as wholesome or worthy in Canada until they've left and proven their worth and come back. And I think that's a that's a cultural thing that, that's in every aspect of the work we I do. I think we got to claim Drake, um, though. I just wanted to let him. Yeah, well, yeah, probably, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Only because he made it in the U.S., right? So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's true. There are a few that have done well here. You look at people like, you know, Joni Mitchell and Anne Murray and some of the really classic singers. Even some of our own bands like Tragically Hip, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, they were truly Canadian success stories before they became successful elsewhere. But but it isn't often the case, right? Right. Got to agree. Not in health. All right. Ready or not. Throw me the zinger. Ready or not. Here it comes. Here's the zinger. Boxers are brief. <laughs> Is that it? It's uh, okay. Let's start from the top. If you could put any one message on a billboard that reach millions, even billions of people, and you can stratify this audience to wherever you want, or you can keep it general. What message would you put on that billboard and why? Um, be kinder to each other. And, uh, and I think the reason why is we see so much um, negativity happening in the world now when it comes to our messaging. So like I've basically given up my Twitter account because I just can't handle the crap on there anymore. I don't use Facebook for so many reasons that we probably all understand now. Um, and as people are getting so used to just screaming and yelling at each other all the time and not putting themselves in other people's shoes that we've lost track of of you know how to be human so simply be kind be nice 
Beautiful. Say sorry. That's another one. Be kind, be nice, and say sorry a lot. Beautiful. You know, I love that you answered it so quickly because you already know that's it's typically if people are answering it quick, it's something that's true to the core of their beliefs. So I love that mm-hmm. that's the first thing that came to your mind. And it's something, it's an answer that we've received in different forms a lot, actually, to this question, which I think that's, I'm, I'm optimistic and reassured by that at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got the right people on. Yeah, I got to say. Yeah, honestly, right? <laughs> so, uh, Darren, thank you, Dr. Larson, for coming on. My and pleasure. It was truly. Call me Darren, really. I am just like you, Damien, Darren. Fouad, you need a D name, man. Yeah, I come need, on, I'll catch up. Drake, Drake, that's you, it. Come we'll, on. we'll spell your name backwards. You can be Dua. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll I'll prefer Drake, right. but I'll I'll take Doff. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Only because you want that big house in the bridal. Oh, yeah, I would love that. one day you'll I get. I would love that. I've passed by that enough times on the bus. So. <laughs> right, right. That's so true. With the last like twenty seconds, is there anything that you would like to promote or mention, or perhaps like if there's uh, if somebody wants to reach you, where can they do that? Or shout out. I mean, I'm always happy to talk to people. So through my um, women's college uh, email address or my University of Toronto email address, which is always first name dot last name at in this case, utoronto.ca or wchospital.ca or accenture.com, all of that, mm-hmm. um, that I'm happy to speak to people anytime. I'm always happy to, uh, to help uh, when people need a, a little bit of a lift or some advice. Um, that's what I find the greatest joy in. And, and I think, you know, it, it, what I would encourage you guys to do is keep doing what you're doing because I think you're asking all the right questions. And uh you're the kind of guys i want to work with in my life and i want to be around so um don't lose touch even after this hour absolutely thank you so much that was a great comment i'm blushing but (laughs) definitely (laughs) won't lose touch (laughs) (laughs) yeah awesome quick more ring lights more ring lights (laughs) we're all flustered now okay um thank you again darren um hopefully we can have you on again in the future sometime uh when perhaps we're a little bit larger you know all right and with that ciao If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.